2: Hello and welcome to Politics War Room with James Carville and I'm Al Hunt. This week, our guests are master political strategist and founding partner of GBAO, Jim Gerstein, and the senior fellow at Eno Transportation and Logistics Professional, Jeff Davis. Now remember, we love to take your questions, so write into Room at gmail.com or send a tweet to at Politicon for next week's show. We'll get to as many as we can, but don't forget to tell us where you're from. Please check out the links to our sponsors, Hold On Bags, Sleep Me by Chili Sleep, and Real Paper in the show notes. We thank you for supporting our sponsors. It helps make this podcast happen. Please tell your friends about us and remind them to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. James, you know, we talk about all the disagreements in Washington. There is one thing Republicans and Democrats agree on. The Medicare trust fund will be insolvent in five years or so as it's pumping out more money than it's taken in. And that would trigger automatic sizable cuts. So what do you do about it? you got to do something about it, right? President Biden offered a serious proposal. Increase the Medicare tax that wealthy Americans pay on investment income from 3.8% to 5%. That's only on unearned income over $400,000. And also expand Medicare's ability to negotiate prescription drug prices to reduce cost. Republicans are outraged. Big tax, big government. Okay, okay. It's such a bad idea. Kevin McCarthy and company, Mitch McConnell, tell us what you want to do instead to solve this problem that you admit looming insolvency. Now, the only other answer, James, is to cut benefits. And Democrats should be salivating over this debate. Should we increase taxes on the wealthy retiree making a million dollars of investment net income or cut the benefits that are tied to some working guy who's living on 40 grand. Bring it on, James.
3: Well, not only I think you should bring it on, but you got to bring it on with consistency and repetition. All right? Just because you pointed out or we pointed out on this show or somebody goes on cable TV and points it out, that's not going to do you any good. You got to do visuals, I, I agree, it, it, it's like, plus it's such insane public policy that negotiate, you know, a set of tires. I mean, you can't ne- negotiate Medicare, but you're you, you right on, but let's see if they have the discipline and the tenacity to just keep hammering this home. And what they should do is start running national ads in, in swing states right now. and and just make them as uncomfortable as you can possibly make them. I couldn't agree
2: more. What you can't do is just uh, watch the Republicans wallow in their agony, and they are wallowing. You've got to make a positive case. But anything the Republicans try to do on Medicare or Social Security is going to cause hell. Trump already has said, keep your hands off these while the right-wing crazies want to slash them. And, and, you know, James, the other issue is Medicaid, which Republicans never are able to understand is just as popular as Medicare. So North, North Carolina, that right wing legislature, Republican legislature for years has resisted accepting uh, uh, going along with Governor Cooper's pressure to become the 41st state to accept uh, Obamacare's expansion of Medicaid benefits. They have now capitulated. They are giving in. It's every time it's on the ballot. Idaho, uh, Missouri, South Dakota, Oklahoma, it carries. Time is against the holdouts. Um, You know, our guest a few weeks ago, Brandon Presley in Mississippi, what a great issue for him down there. Mississippi is now, will be one of 10 states that has not taken Medicaid expansion, and they got 30 rural hospitals closing. I mean, these are are great
3: issues for Democrats. So, as, as a child of rural America, let me point out, something. So so you have Mississippi. Let, let, let's say you have Amy, Mississippi. I don't know. Just pick any town that right. you want. Macomb. And since you have a, a hospital, a hospital, that, that hospital can't is going, well, a lot of them can't make it without Medicaid expansion because so much of their, their population base is on Medicaid because it's very poor part of the country for for, for very explainable reasons. But it's not just that the poor people that live there are, are, are not are, are, are going to be denied health care or health care or healthcare with anything proximate to them. The non-poor people, you know, they, they're lawyers in that they're, they're dentists there, they're, they're CPAs, they're school teachers, they're librarians. They're all kinds of uh, uh, people who are not. Uh, they're policemen, fire, fire people, whatever. They. When the rural hospital closes and they got to go another 50 miles, he could treat for a heart attack or or, or an accident injury. The, the impact of this is way beyond because a lot of people are, probably, yeah, it's going to hurt some goddamn people. I'm paying the tax Of course, it's, it's cruelty is the kind of point of it. Right. But it, just, it doesn't just affect people, quote, like that, unquote, which is, you know, Get what I'm saying. It affects everybody.
2: Well, it does. And the other thing is that the Medicaid benefits just don't go to what we consider poor people. They go to some working class, middle class people. The French, the French figure Russ Voigt, who was Trump's last, last budget director, he's now peddling uh, this idea to House Republicans to require uh, work requirements for all of the of the of the social programs, including Medicaid. James, there are 40 million women covered by Medicaid in their pregnancy and in birth. So what's Mr. Voigt going to do? Have them waiting tables as they go into the the delivery room? Uh, This is, uh, Medicare is a terrible issue for for Republicans. Medicaid
3: is just as bad. So let let me give you another example where Medicaid, and I I, I think whatever can help poor people, you're talking me wrong, but where most everyone has a stake in that. Let's say, I'm 60 years old, I'm retired, I'm married. My wife and I have $175,000 in the bank. And I, I, through part time work and retirement benefits, we're making $35,000 a year. All right? But if one of our parents needs long term medical care, they can, by stripping the assets down to $20,000 or less, but and we well should. Their parents can, can can live their life out in dignity, and not break their children. And this this applies across the board. I, I can't tell you the number of people, in in you know in approaching an old age, who would be utterly destroyed by having to pay for long term health care. It's so it. it you know, th- th- this thing works, it, it, it affects people, and it's not just who, who they want you to believe in. I don't believe there's any such thing as the undeserving poor, okay? That's just not a, something that I use, but a, uh, to, to get into the nomenclature of the moment, that's what, that's what they're trying to convince their voters of, which is totally bullshit. Totally. And, and you know, I, I don't know how you you, you know you you got to make the case consistently, and you got to push it forward. But with you know, real examples of, of of people who would be, you know, who, who a retired policemen, shit, a, a retired gunnery sergeant, right? You know, drive that guy broke, or her. Absolutely, you, you, a lot of women retired. You know, James, let me let me give you another one.
2: You remember all the ranting and raving from Kevin McCarthy and company about the extra money Democrats voted for the under-resourced Internal Revenue Service last year? Some early returns are in, the Washington Post reports. The IRS is now answering 90% of its phone calls. It's covered its backlog of overdue returns. And while developing new software because of this money, has processed over 99% of tax returns this season. That sounds like a pretty
3: good investment to me, James Carville. It's an excellent investment. And, and, you know, it's the oldest thing in the world. The Republicans get a government program, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later in, in the show. Uh, they starve it of funding, and then they claim it doesn't work. Well, what do you think yeah. it's going to happen? yeah. And, and, and the other thing is, and I, literally, and I think I'm right on this. You can correct me, but I think you, you 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 studied this issue. This actually cuts the deficit. It does. When you spend money on this, it it, it, it actually brings in more revenue than it goes out. Right. I think absolutely. I right? The Republicans' move to
2: repeal it would have added. I think. I think I have this figure right. One hundred and fifteen. Uh, uh, billion I get my millions and billions mixed up sometimes, James, but $115 billion to the deficit. I mean it's just it's it's amazing. The reason it increases revenue is because they're not going after you know the small businessman or the farmer or the working stiff making fifty-two grand a year. They are wealthy people who don't pay taxes. Uh, they either cheat right. Right, or they find you know dubious loopholes. Those are the people they're going to. And and and, and the, those people when they avoid taxes, that means two one of two things: either others pay more, or you have a bigger deficit. That's the only only option.
3: Correct. So, well. Now, thank you for explaining it. But I, I, I knew that I'd read that. I, I know you told me that, and you follow these issues yeah. uh, pretty close. It's just, it, it, it's, it's, just insane. It is.
2: What else is on your mind, yeah. James Carville?
3: I, I don't know, Al. I, I, I guess the, 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 whole. We'll probably talk about it in the Q and A the whole Fox Dominion stuff. It, it just, it, it's just going to go on and on and on and on. But. I guess what's on my mind, to ask you this. The the House Republicans keep saying that they're going to produce a budget. They're going to produce a budget, okay? We haven't seen one. You've covered more budgets and talked to more people, Bob Greenstein, people that know this. Do you think they're going to actually produce a budget one day? At some point, they have to. Uh, There there will be a budget.
2: I think it will be one of the phoniest budgets you've ever seen. They're going to make, you know, assumptions. Uh, they're going to talk about freezing programs, which are cuts, of course. They're going to slash uh, spending for the poor. Uh, I mean, they're really poor; they really are. Uh, and uh, they can't touch. Uh, they can't touch uh, entitlements, and they can't touch defense. If you can't touch entitlements and you can't, can't touch defense, and you're not going to raise any taxes, and balancing the budget uh, is um, is uh, you know one of those as we say impossible acts.
3: So let, let me. Well, go follow through with this a little bit and understand a little better, and I think our our listeners can understand a little better. All fiscal bills have to originate in the House, constitutionally. That's correct, right? That's correct, yeah. Russell Long
2: never accepted that, but that basically
3: is correct, James, yes. (laughs) Okay. So they can produce a budget or they can just pass a budget, like at 3 o'clock in the morning, right? Right, right. Then... Then, then you you can pick it apart all that you want. Because at some point, they have to go on the record. And they have to start. And so they start there, then, of course, the Senate is not going to go along with it. And then something passes the Senate, and then they have conference committee, and, you know, that gets out. But but the point here is we can hold them to the fire because they've got to produce a budget. E- either put one out, or they got to pass one, which is just as bad? No question. They
2: have to. And and they are they are tormented by this. I mean, what they privately would like to do is cut Social Security and Medicare. And some of them even want to cut the defense budget. You know, in the past years, I've been receptive to the idea of cutting the defense budget. But we're, when we're going and the kind of money we're pouring in, I think, for a good cause to Ukraine and trying to build up weapons, pretty hard to cut the defense budget right now. And uh, they, they have an absolutely impossible act. I mean, it's kind of like that old expression when people are, are told to go do something to themselves that it's impossible to do. That's what Republicans are going through right now.
3: You know, so so back back to, to Ukraine, did Russians, at least from what I'm reading about this battle of Bakhmut or, or whatever, they're just suffering unbelievable losses. And you just kind of wonder, when's that gonna get back home? And when people start asking questions, I think we lost 55,000 people over what, 10 years in the Vietnam War? War yeah. it, it, some people say they've lost 70,000 already. Some people
2: say that understates it could be as high as 100,000. Right, right. And they're half, I mean, half, the, I mean, size, half the size of uh, a population
3: that we had during the Vietnam War. Yeah, I, I but you, you know, in as well as keeping the news, the control of news or something, you, you can't control somebody's fucking kid Coming back home in a body bag, I I, I don't know. I I, I wonder if they they're not closer to a breaking point than we think. I
2: don't well, know I hope that. they are. I think what I gather yeah. what they've been doing they're they're sending you know all their prisoners there, uh, and they're taking people from you know Siberia and the outer provinces. There ain't ain't many uh, conscripts going in from Moscow. But after a while, that wears right. out. And uh, yeah, you're... so I I just um, uh, you know and and this battle. I think is mainly a symbolic battle uh if if the russians win it or they hold it uh it's not that they've gained any new territory and what the ukrainians are trying to do are keep them bogged down until they begin their spring offensive so you know i'm afraid it's going to go on for a long time but uh putin's not playing a strong hand right now
3: yeah my, my hope is sometimes things don't go very well they don't go very well and then one day they fall off the cliff and and there's some breaking point to have with with the number of, of of not just deaths but if you if the, they got over seventy thousand dead how many, how many people don't, don't have an arm or blade or testicles or whatever the fuck gets blown up in wartime yeah yeah no uh, i no. mean uh, i don't know i hope i hope that we have the tenacity to stick this out because i think they can win i do thing.
2: too and when our friend ann applebaum gets back from Ukraine, where she is right now. Let's uh, let's see if we can get her on the program.
3: Absolutely,
2: for sure. Okay, all right. Yes, sir. Small things can lead to lasting change if we stop and say, "Hold on." Thank you, hold on, for sponsoring this episode. You also can find the link in our show notes. James, Jim Gerstein is one of America's great uh, pollsters and political experts. Uh, It's great to have him on the show. It's uh, at least the second, maybe the third time you've been on, Jim. And as well as uh, American politics, you are very familiar personally and professionally with Israeli politics. And as the government there tries to strip the judiciary of its authority, there are massive protests. Uh, and it's profoundly depressed some close Israeli friends uh, in America. Uh, and uh, Michael Bloomberg, who the former mayor who is one of Israel's great friends, wrote the, wrote the other day, and I'm going to quote, uh, that, that Netanyahu is courting disaster, imper- imperiling Israel's alliances around the world, its security in the region, its economy at home, and the very democracy upon which, which the country was built. Is this an existential threat for Israel?
1: I mean, it's no small statement for Michael Bloomberg to make. It's not; he's not a um, traditional critic of Israel, shall we say? And for him to be raising alarm bells is is very clearly showing how deep this is uh, is going into uh, American Jewish society, American society, or American political discussion. Uh, and that a country that's shared, that's based its relationship with the United States on shared values. This is very alarming for people. Um, and because it goes to the core of whether they, th- whether the two countries actually will share values in, in the near future. Um, the it's interesting out the, so whether it's an existential threat, it depends who you ask. Um, but it's pretty frightening. And you've got, um, A lot of parallels, I'd say, to what's gone on in America in the last several years uh, during the Trump years.
2: I, I, I want to pick up on that because Bibi Netanyahu, it seems to me, is a combination of Donald Trump. He's smarter than Trump. But in that he will do anything, anything to stay in power. And also of Kevin McCarthy in that he has to heed the craziest of the crazies in his coalition of nutbags or they can throw him out it's hard to see an off-ramp.
1: He is the unique figure in the world who can claim both Kevin McCarthy and Donald Trump standing. Um, What happened is that Netanyahu won a very close election last November. Uh, It was the fifth election in just a matter of years because like America, uh, Israel is very evenly divided and very polarized. Uh, and so Netanyahu shares the weaknesses that McCarthy has and that he's beholden to extreme, the most extremist elements in his country and in his, uh, and in the political, um, you know, in the political universe. So while he is beholden, he is beholden to, um, three, two particular or three particular parties, of which he has appointed a finance minister, who uh, is ex- the most extreme of the extreme, and this person has no no qualifications to be finance minister, other than he can topple the government if he wants. That's right. why he's finance minister. That's the ministry. He <coughs>
2: he's wants. Israel's Marjorie Taylor Greene.
1: Uh, on on steroids, yep. actually, he called. While she calls for, you know, she talks about Jewish lasers shooting uh, from the skies, uh, the finance minister of Israel just called to wipe out a Palestinian village that had just been rampaged by settlers, Jewish settlers uh, who went into this oh. West Bank village. Uh, he has now managed to, he, is, he, he also calls himself a fascist homophobe proudly. He says, I'm a proud fascist homophobe. And th- this is the kind of person that BB is beholden to. I mean, it's, it's, it's nuts, and it would be funny if it weren't oh, so it serious. Sure would be.
2: You know, I think this puts President Biden in a very delicate position. He is a longtime <clears throat> huge supporter of Israel. His greatest leverage would be to threaten to cut off aid if they do this. But I don't think Biden's going to do that, which means he doesn't really have much leverage, does he?
1: He, he there's no signs that he is going to exert us leverage over the israeli government and as much as i would like to see him as, as a strong supporter of israel got you know, my wife is from israel whose family is you know her entire family is there i've lived there i would love to see the us government exert the pressure it needs to do to to have an impact on israeli policy especially uh, as it relates to the Palestinians, where it is an international issue. Um, but here where it's about the half the country in Israel needs America's help to stop the country from going into the uh, you know going down this path. So but there's no you know it's unlikely that this is an issue that President Biden is going to put his political capital into. Uh, we've got a lot of our. Yeah, you know, I would like him to, but I understand we've got a lot of issues here at home uh, that he is focused on, as well as abroad. Um, but they certainly won't do it. I don't think they'll do it aggressively out loud in public because um, they, I think their assessment is that it's best to do it behind the scenes. Whether or not that is effective or not, I don't know.
3: But. James. So, so Jim, the benefit of our. Uh, listeners, you and I go way back, way, way back. But I, I think I'll say this: when working together, maybe most favorite project we worked on was the Israeli race in 1999, and it was it was quite glamorous. We were. You know, Danny Abraham's G4 and having dinner with Simone <laughs> Perez, and we won the goddamn thing. Okay, <laughs> and we and I come out of the Catholic tradition, and you come out of Jewish tradition. Neither one, which is known for its optimistic view of the world, <laughs> but we actually thought we were thinking like great things that it was going to be a, a, a democracy from the from the Mediterranean to the Jordan. And the whole goddamn thing has turned into a disaster. How stupid were we? I I,
1: I was so stupid that I thought Bibi Netanyahu, who we had just crushed in that election, right, but he was going to be a footnote in history. <laughs> I will I will acknowledge that I was quite off. Oh right boy,
3: now. I was. Our was youthful, naive, stupid, fucking. I think of that all the time. We're like on top of the world. We were going to dinner, and, you know, in the Mediterranean, and you know, eating fresh produce and fish and axe ah,
1: shit. I will say something that applies. Actually, though, a story, a brief story from then that applies to what Al just asked me. And but I recall walking down the street with James in Tel Aviv and people would come up to us, (laughs) let me clarify, they would come up to him, and they would recognize him, just average, regular people walking down the street, not involved in politics or anything, and they would come up to him, and they'd say, thank you for coming here to save our country from that, yeah, (laughs) that was in 1999, and, you know, and, and James turns to me, and goes, I don't know if it's me or what, but. This country's like political Viagra.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it's the only place. You could. <laughs> cool. So forever, and you know, you've been APAC and I've done a bunch of events for I've been, you know, a lot of our friends have been really involved. And the argument is is look, this is a d- beacon of democracy and our values in the Middle East. And when people see the great things that are happening in Israel, they want war for the South. The United States has a historical commitment. And we've given hundreds of billions of dollars in aid, which I'm, I'm traditionally have always been for. I I still am, but that argument is not holding very good water today. They're going to have to think of something different and new because that's the last thing that they seem to want to be as a democracy. Well,
1: I'll say the organization in the United States that I think is most. Uh, connected to making change in Israel that wants to support the the Israelis who are making change is, is J Street, which has actually changed its slogan from pro Israel, pro peace. This year they changed it to pro Israel, pro peace, pro democracy, uh, to underscore the, the importance and the centrality of a strong democratic system to achieving peace, security, and, and a strong Israel. Uh, so, yes, the, the, the values piece is, and I think this is a lot of where Tom Friedman and Michael Bloomberg are going as well in, in the pieces that
3: they're writing. And, and I'll go back to Al, but the United States government, the, the government of Israel owes the United States, I mean, it, it, you know, the Iron Dome, the the aid, you know, now Republicans are talking about getting rid of foreign aid, which a lot of the foreign aid goes, it goes to Egypt too. I mean, that, you give Jimmy Carter, who's... You know uh, in a hospice now i mean but camp david until has worked pretty good over the years
1: <laughs> i mean yeah it was uh, the old, the first country israel made it peace with obviously was egypt <laughs> Right. and egypt was no it is not some small power in the arab right. world um, well, but the second piece of the camp david accords was palestinian peace
3: well, Which, I'll turn back now. I'll just remember naive, ill-informed, goofy, anti-historic optimism. No. <laughs> right I,
1: I'd say we had good reason, James, for optimism. I mean, we had a special person become <laughs> yeah, prime minister. He did. And he with somebody who was clearly a—, a And we
3: had a president <laughs> of the United States that was dedicated to peace, and we almost became we close. but
1: It came close. close. It came very close. Uh,
2: Let me stay on this for a second, uh, Jim. Uh, Why has the population, the voters, seemingly veered so to the right? The Labour Party, of Ben-Gurion, Golda Meir, Yitzhak Rabin, that's only a small party right now uh, in the Knesset. So why is the country, I mean, I know it's divided, but you wouldn't have thought these crazies would have had any shot... 20 years ago. I mean, is it the security threat? Is it cultural or religious? Do Orthodox multiply more? I don't know what.
1: <laughs> it's, it's a bit of an all of the above, but at the core of all this, Al, is is Netanyahu. He is a, he is a very, he's highly identified with security there. Uh, not, you know, despite the fact that security experts and retired military and, and retired Shin Bed, retired are against him, He's, he projects an aura of security with a key part of the population. And what has happened is, um, uh, it, yeah, he, <laughs> this is where the Trump parallels come in. He has major legal problems. Um, yeah. Trump is not yet indicted. Bibi is actually on trial right now. And it's going to last a long time. So everything kind of begins and ends with him trying to hold on to power. This is the parallel to to Trump. We've talked about McCarthy, but the parallel for for Bibi to Trump is that he, uh, yeah, everything begins with how can he stay in power and out of prison? And so he, like the Republican Party, he has a control over his voter, the Likud Party voters, his party's voters, in a way that the other Likud politicians are afraid to go against him just as the Republicans are afraid to go against Trump because they fear the voters in their party. But if it were up to most, the Likud party would actually, a lot of them would like to get rid of Bibi and form a broader coalition with, uh, with the center left as a more of a unity oriented government that's focused on security, but they can't do it because of, um, because they can't challenge BB, just as Kevin McCarthy can't tra- cha- uh, challenge. Boy, Donald the
2: parallels Trump. <clears throat> are really stunning, Jim. Let me turn to a couple uh, American politics questions. When you look at your feeling thermometer now, Republicans and Democrats, uh, how are they doing?
1: I mean, people are not happy with anybody. Uh, voters you know, voters, pretty unhappy with uh, the parties and with politicians in general. Uh, more antipathy towards the Republicans um but I think that we've got a few events coming up in the next next three or four weeks uh, culminating on April 4th that will tell us a lot about where the country is right now, um, both the you know, the general public as well as the Democratic Party voters um, for yeah you know, we have the Wisconsin Supreme Court race coming up uh, April 4th uh, this is about as good of um, bellwether as you can find in that. Wisconsin is the most evenly divided state in the country, or, or among them. You know, Biden won by about twenty thousand votes. Trump had beaten Hillary Clinton by about twenty thousand votes. We split a governor. You know, Democrats won the governorship. Lost. Uh, Republicans won the Senate seat in twenty twenty two. So I mean, th- this is as purple as you can get. And we have a an election. as, as the viewer? Is the listeners of this podcast know? Uh, we have a Supreme Court race on April 4th in Wisconsin that's going to determine the balance of the court there. And um, I think, yeah, you know, as of now, I, I I like the matchup that we have there. Um, I think that uh, our candidate is a strong candidate, um, Janet Prozewicz. Uh, she's a former prosecutor, former ju- or a judge, um, and she is against a basically the Maga Republican who emerged <laughs> that, that, that that the person from the Maga movement um and he's in abortion is definitely popping up uh you see you hear it from voters and focus groups they uh they know what's at stake here and I think it you know w- whether or not we see the the dynamics and trends that emerge from 2022 to continue into 2023 this this is a good bellwether Um, or a good indicator, I should say. So we'll have are going to certainly
2: watch that. Let me try one more, and then I want to turn it back to James. You have a couple terrific young experts in your organization on the Hispanic vote. They were very helpful to me uh, during the campaign. Your take both on what happened with the Hispanic vote in 2022 and looking ahead to next time.
1: Sure. And you're referring to my colleagues, Anna ripper who James knows well. Oh, uh, Anna ripper Yeah, no, very,
3: yeah. I wonder, <laughs> what are you
1: <laughs> And uh, Michelle Mayorga, uh, who's in uh, New Mexico and a, another they great are terrific. colleague of mine. Uh, I, 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 I think the, uh, yeah, Hispanic voters are a diverse pop. The first thing that people tell you is it's a diverse population and it's not a monolith. And you're going to you know, Voter Hispanic voters in Florida, which is heavily Cuban, are different than Hispanic voters in uh, in Arizona, who are different than Hispanic voters in Illinois, and et cetera, et cetera. So, but what you do see is um, it, it is that they were also similar to the rest of the U.S. population uh, in what was driving a lot of votes in twenty twenty two. We did um, we did the independent cam- independent expenditure campaigns in. Uh, for the three House races in Nevada that the Democrats won, and I, it's a you know, large Hispanic population, uh, large, uh, very important part of the, of the vote and the coalition there. And I got to tell you, abortion was a big issue. Uh, people talked about, um, yeah, it, it, it just that when they saw so, when they saw what happened with Dobbs, and that uh, that abortion was no longer available or, or no longer a guaranteed right. Even in cases of rape, incest, or to save the, the life of the mother, the health of the mother, that, was, that overcame a lot of doubts that they had about, uh, about Democrats in 2022. And I think we've talked about this before, but we were headed to massive, massive losses in 2022 for, you know, driven by historical, you know, the history of first midterm election, all that. And then the Dobbs decision came out. And you know, it was a horrible thing for people across the country. I've never seen a single event in my career change the political dynamics of a of a rate of a election that, aside from nine eleven, which was obviously very different and very had very different for many different reasons, was a just a completely different issue and consequence. But uh, but those are the only things that I've seen that where a single event or a single decision completely transformed the political dynamics. And that played with white voters, it played with black voters, and it played with Hispanic voters. Um, but especially in these key races, um, it, it was very impactful James. with Hispanic voters.
3: So, so Jim, uh, earlier in the week we talked to we talked about Wisconsin, and you said, yeah, you kind of like our positioning pretty good. Last night... I ran into Ben Wickler who's the chairman of the party. And his assessment was, yeah, we, we, we're we doing pretty well now, maybe a little bit less. And the Republican is up with a massive TV buy because there's family in Wisconsin called the U-Lions who are like the Koch brothers of God knows what. And that he said that he's got to start committing money now and, and they have to hope that it's the end. I said, well, Ben, i tell you what, i am be Jim on the show tomorrow. <laughs> and if you can, don't wait till the end. Send a check to our Supreme Court candidate in Wisconsin now, because the U lines are, are flooding the airways, and we don't have the option of budgeting from election day back. I guess that's my plea to <laughs> all
1: I think that's a very important plea. <laughs> And, and the U lines, it's it, yeah, they, it is endless cash. They, they don't have to take a loan out here to make <laughs> to make those donations. And, and Kelly is their guy, the the, the Republican or the conservative. Right. Uh, that's the guy they wanted to win. And I believe they put in several million into the first round in, to to help him.
3: And he's a really right winger. I mean, he 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 doesn't try to hide it anything, does he? No, no,
1: not at all. I mean, he was a stop-the-steal lawyer after he, after he lost his uh, his election in 20. He then went to go help the stop-the-steal folks from on the legal front.
3: Well, boy, I'll tell you what, Jim Gersin here, he, he sees more poet in US politics, I'm sure, than anybody else who obviously knows what's going on in Wisconsin. But I cannot tell our, our listeners how big this race is and how really important it is. And uh I'll, I'll just vouch for you on that one jim and uh thank you for coming on the show i think it's very important that i, I think our listeners of you know not just curious about wisconsin but are all, all watching what's happening in israel it, with, with, with trepidation and fear and it it's it, it's something to be concerned about and some some fears warranted i think uh,
1: yes and i'll i'll Mention a, uh, something else that just happened in Israel. it was in this morning's news in Israel. but uh, a, a, as some folks have been who follow this closely know, the reservists uh, make up a key piece of the Israeli army in general, but all, especially in the Air Force. And they had the, uh, one of the squadrons was called up for reserve duty, and they said they don't want to report to reserve duty because of what's going on. And, you know, Al asked if this is an existential existential threat. I mean, this is tearing tearing apart the fabric of the society. What And the response to them saying they don't want to serve a dictatorship, they don't want to serve in something that's going in this direction, uh, the response was that the Minister of Communications in Israel said, the, the, you know, they can go to hell. Okay, this is one of the most elite unions. That happens to be the same squadron, of one of the most uh, beloved prisoners of war, missing in action pilots uh, named Ron Arad, who disappeared back in the '80s and yeah was presumed dead, uh, but his wife went on TV to say, or she she went out and says she said that um, uh, you, that the ministers telling them to go to hell. Let me just tell you. Our family and their families have already been through hell to protect this country. I mean, it's a Boy, very, powerful. very powerful symbol. yeah? well. Wow. You know,
3: <laughs> the Al, Al couldn't find a pilot that would fly and his, his criminal wife to Rome. All <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, look, this is a deal that Israel's like here. The more educated people can't stand netanyahu is a general rule well guess who's educated pilots yeah they're educated people that's <laughs> my nature they didn't just fall off the turnip truck to fly a a, a, a jet a 777 requires some education hard to, it's hard to and call the, air
2: force squadron reservist uh, some kind of anti-israeli radicals uh, uh, it's just uh that's a that's a that's a heck of a story and jim gerstein i want a second James, you are a fabulous guest. Uh, your expertise is extraordinary, and we want to get you back on uh, soon.
3: Yes, we go from the Middle East to Middle America. <laughs> 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 well,
1: it's always it's always great to talk right. and talk with you guys anytime. Thank right. you.
2: Hey, James, our guest is one of the country's foremost transportation experts, uh, Jeff Davis, senior fellow at the ENO, E-N-O, transportation think tank. He knows rail, air, any mode of transportation. Jeff, uh, boy, your topic is really in the news these days. Let's start with the Norfolk Southern train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Republicans say the Biden administration was asleep with a switch. Democrats say this is what happens with sweeping deregulation. East Palestine residents are suing the railroad. Sort it out. Who's culpable?
0: Well, first of all, the the railroad's going to pay whatever their their results of their uh, negligence are. However, it's important to know this happens quite a lot. There's an average of three railroad derailments a day somewhere. Uh, The big seven class one railroads have about 900 a day collectively. Most of those are west of the Mississippi River where the the tracks are very rural. Uh, And then the the eight hundred other short railroads have a combination about two hundred uh, year. So you have eleven hundred per year, about three a day. Uh, only about three hundred of those have any kind of a hazmat release. But uh, for the most part, you know they're they're fairly commonplace. As much as uh a, as much as a automobile accident can vary from you running off the road and running a brushing up against the, the off ramp to a major collision. There's various degrees of uh, of of severity to these things, and uh, from what I can tell, this one was just bad luck. The NTSB preliminary investigation has said that that uh, the the guy in the cab hit the switch the minute to kill the brakes when he was supposed to, but uh, the, the drill was already in progress. Well, are
2: there any regulations or requirements that might pre- prevent have prevented this or future mishaps?
0: Uh, there are plenty of regulations. There there weren't on this particular thing. Uh, what happened was that. The a bearing in there got too hot, and Norfolk Southern had uh, bearing temperature sensors every ten miles. But then there was a twenty mile gap, and during that twenty mile gap, it went from seventy degrees below the pay attention point to fifty degrees past the oh shit hit the stop button and stop everything. Right, and uh, and so the there are no current uh, federal regulations about how close together those sensors should be. Norfolk Southern's already said they're going to start putting them closer together. And the bipartisan bill that came out with Sherrod Brown and J.D. Vance and John Fetterman and the rest would also uh, force uh, railroads to put those sentences closer together.
2: Yeah. You you wrote, uh, you know, reading your site the other day, that there's been more than usual criticism of Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg uh, as he's viewed uh, as a potential political candidate someday. Now, I think he was slow off the mark. In a crisis, you always show up. But is the criticism of Buddha Judge fair? To some
0: extent, Republicans are kind of ch- kind of changing the rules a bit. They, uh, we don't really have much of a tradition in this country of the federal transportation secretary uh, just showing up, you know, all the time. It's, there's a disaster. I think Freddie Pena did it a few times when he was secretary. There were a couple of plane crashes. Right. Well, uh, for the most part, there, there's not a real tradition of them being, you know, with the on-the-scenes person. Uh, seen as the, the the protector and helper, uh, because they're normally not running for office. Uh, this is the, the really unusual thing is that Buttigieg is seen as a serious contender in a, in a post-Biden presidential race, and a lot of Republicans are kind of afraid of him. So a lot of this, I think, is just trying to get uh, some damage done to him early uh, before he can turn around and uh, actually be running again in a few years. Right.
3: James Carville. So, so Jeff, we, we, we talked earlier, and you said something that struck me is uh, we're going to move to the airlines here uh that u.s air carriers do not have gps in other um, words um yeah the, the air traffic control
0: still doesn't have gps okay. fully utilized in it um after a 15-year period they finally got a system installed in the planes at the end of 2020 where that now uh, all the planes their little transponder is not just broadcasting the flight number it's also broadcasting Uh, the GPS location, heading, and speed. So now that they're all broadcasting that and all the planes can receive it and send it, no one on the ground is really paying attention much to it yet. They're still in another 10, 15-year process of trying to get uh, all the facilities on the ground to be able to read and relate to that data so that hopefully someday uh, we can actually uh, stack these guys in order and and allow the planes to go between cities at the most efficient straight line, which is, let them say, fuel uh, and, and and be able to get more planes in the sky at the same time to meet demand in 10 or 15 years. So, but it's been a long time coming.
3: So every time that me, you, anybody listening to this show, Al, buys a plane ticket, uh, don't we pay 7.5% extra tax to the federal government on the price of that plane ticket?
0: Yes, uh, you pay a 7.5% tax on the base airfare, uh, and also, you pay uh, four dollars and eighty cents per leg. So if you change planes once in a in a, in a single trip, you pay nine sixty there, plus some extra head charges on international and Alaska, Hawaii. And ev- everyone's supposed to pay into this system somehow. Uh, so the the air cargo guys pay, I think, six and a quarter percent of the cost of the air of the waybill to the the cargo fees they charge. The the general aviation guys pay uh, fuel tax. Uh, they're, they're so, a little so where drive. does this
3: money go? I pay this. Yeah, I did, it's all including the ticket. You, you don't you don't think about, well, where does, it, where does it go? Does it go to the general fund? Does it go to where? Uh, there's an airport and airway trust
0: fund started in 1970. It was the Lyndon Johnson administration's idea. They left it on the table. Nixon took it up, got it passed. Uh, and it, it uh, collects all those aviation excise taxes and uh, is supposed to use them for, first of all, capital spending for air traffic control, and then second of all, with what's left over, operational spending. And it's... Before COVID, it was taking in about $16 billion a year and spending about the same amount. COVID obviously did this uh, three-year number on the receipts uh, that are now, hopefully, the Congressional Budget Office says that this is the year they'll come back to what they were pre-COVID.
3: So why, and people tell me that, that notice business to say that the technology that we have is less than optimal.
0: That is true. Uh, yeah. A lot, a lot of it's very old in, in, in uh, the FAA facilities, especially. Right. Uh, and it's a couple of reasons. It's partly because they are so safety conscious that the once once they get something tested and it passes the safety test, they're very hesitant to change to something else that might uh, you know, until they can get it 100% passed. And the rate of change in computers is so fast that uh, that even once you once something has passed the safety test, it's, you know, it's becoming on the way to becoming obsolete the upside of that is that the longer the, the computers are the only thing where the, the longer you wait to uh, buy something, you're actually getting more for your dollar instead of less. Cause, cause All
3: right. a thousand okay.
0: dollars spent on computers buys so much more than it did, you know, power wise, you know, five or 10 years ago.
3: Yeah. All right. Well, you know, bottom line is I paid a lot into this fund and I'm, I'm not sure that I'm getting, Yeah. not just me, but every air traveler, uh, is getting the kind of technology they deserve. But at any rate, you, you, you hope to straighten us out. Now, thank you very much for taking enough time out of your busy day to be on the show. Thank you. Well,
0: there, thank you. There's, there's one other thing you'd want me to mention if you want
3: to... Yeah, go well, ahead, sure. Ahead. Ahead. Go ahead. Uh,
0: we got to look at where we get this money and, and what it's doing. Because right now, uh, you notice that airlines are going to a lot of nickel and diming fees. Uh, you know, they are charging ancillary fees for a seat change, more luggage, and all that kind of stuff. We're encouraging that because that 7.5% tax is on the base airfare. But it's not on the fees. So for every twenty-five dollars that an airline switches over from having been base fare to getting out of fees, they save a buck eighty-eight. And these are companies that they know how much money they're going to save on system-wide fuel costs for cutting each page out of the in-flight uh, magazine. So you know, if, you, if the government's going to give them an incentive to do wrong, they're going to they're going to take it.
2: Let me and let me we got to- Jeff. Let me ask you one more question before we go. I've been flying for almost. 60 years and as james Carville or or my wife can attest it's not a good experience to fly with me i am a nervous flyer and there's a lot of hassle at airports now but as the incomparable jim fallows who flies his own plane notes flying in western europe or north america today is safer than taking a walk or sitting in a chair
0: uh, yes it is we haven't had a fatal accident on commercial aircraft car- air carriers in america uh since 2009 in buffalo and that is the one that uh caused them to increase the uh the minimum number of flight hours uh to be at the stick as a co-pilot from 250 to 1500 and but we're we're so safe that uh now we're running out of uh, pilots so we are having trouble finding pilots who can Meet that fifteen hundred hour max entry level because they either got to have seventy to one hundred thousand dollars to pay for private lessons, or else be military. And The military is trying to retain theirs longer, so you know it's all it all comes around. We, it's the safest system in the history of the world, but uh, it is we we that safe those same safety margins are making it harder to expand. Uh, and flights are going to get more crowded as a result and, and increasingly less
2: comfortable. I don't like any of that, but but safety first. <laughs> anyway, Jeff Davis, you've been a terrific guest. Thank you so much. We've learned you a lot. You bet.
3: Thank you, sir.
2: you know, James, I have not been a big fan of North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis going back to his state legislative days and his first Senate campaign in 2014. To be sure, he's a lot better than the state's new Senator Ted Budd, a real nutbag. But this week, I think Tillis really rose to the occasion. When asked about Fox News' Tucker Carlson's disingenuous, indeed dishonest, summary of videos of the January 6th violent uh, assault on the Capitol, I was given to Carlson exclusively by Kevin McCarthy to play, placate his wing nuts, Carlson said his edit video showed it was really a come-by-eye moment, kind of like a Boy Scout jamboree with a few bad apples. This is the same faux journalist who said Fox News had to stop honestly reporting on the aftermath of the 2020 election because it was driving down the stock price, and he knew he didn't believe what Trump was saying. So when asked about all this, Senator
3: Tillis had a very simple response. Bullshit. I agree. Uh, Mine, I'm going to read from an article in the Washington Post, dateline, Hazel Green, Kentucky. As he claimed the first spot in a mile-long line for free food in the Appalachian foothills, Danny Blair, Blair vividly recalled re- receiving the letter announcing his pandemic-era benefit to help buy groceries was, uh, was about to be slashed. Kentucky lawmakers had voted to end the state's health emergency last spring by default cutting food stamp benefits created to help vulnerable Americans like Blair whether well, the worst of COVID-19. Instead of a $200 a month, he would get just $30. He crumpled up the letter and threw it on the floor of his camper. All right, $200 a month to people in Appalachia it, so they don't have to spend in a, in a time in a mile long line to get food, a mile long. I mean, think of how you get irritated you go to a football game and you're sitting in line. Here you get in line, the most basic thing you can do in the United States. And I looked it up, it's in Madison County, it's 94% white, and it goes for Trump for two to one. And that's not not at all a reason why they shouldn't get it. But man, if, if, if people cut you off and are trying to starve you and you're still voting for them, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't I, know. I'm i just asking questions here. But this is, like, stunning. This is stunning. You're asking and a good one, James. People sitting in line a mile long to eat. Yeah. All right? Yeah. To just eat. And, uh, you know, that, that we shouldn't be punitive to people who we think are the, make unwise political choices but I, I just think this is the kind of thing that 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 really brings it home and, and I guarantee you that I, I know where Madison County is and I bet there are 30 other counties in Kentucky just like that.
2: Yeah. yeah. Let's hope it changes. I'm, I'm yeah. dubious but let's hope it
3: changes. I, I am too. I, I don't know how how you get people's attention more than like them starving but
2: you might right all right now for these great questions that we get from our fabulous listeners this is a familiar one james but with a slightly new twist and it's one that i know you care about a lot as do i brendan in apex north carolina who i think has written this before uh, wants to know the short and long-term prospects for North Carolina because she's tired of losing. However, she says they've got a newly elected state party chair, Anderson Clayton. It gives her hope for much-needed energy, vision, and organizational planning. Do you have any thoughts about that? I I don't, don't know Anderson Clayton. Do you know anything about her, James, or what they're doing in North Carolina?
3: I, I, honestly, I do not. Uh, 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 but, I, but I would have to say I'm generally not up to date on this, but, but I, I, am hopeful just the idea that they may, they're trying something a little bit different because it, in a lot of elections, they, they get close. Uh, they got close last time, but you know, no cigar and there has to be some more energy, uh, in a, in a democratic base in North Carolina. And it, you know, you, you've been on this for a long time and I agree it's, it's the most promising state coming up, that's not Arizona, or Georgia. Right. And a lot of things pretend well for Democrats in North Carolina, the, the migration patterns are, are, are very good. And but we just got to accelerate this And, and this governor's race is in, of course, you, you're very big on this. And, and you're very correct. Man, you want to pick out the three races in the coming cycle other than president that's going to profoundly affect a lot of people's lives the, the, it's not so much that you get it's so great that you win the governorship or keep it in North Carolina it's the utter disaster that befalls you if you lose it
2: yeah you well know? you nailed that James if the Republicans control everything the, the Supreme Court which they took control of this year the state legislature with that right-wing state legislature if they get the governor's chair it's only been, you know, thanks to North Carolina's really fabulous governor, Roy Cooper, who staved off a lot of this stuff and, as we mentioned earlier, has really kind of forced them uh, into accepting Medicaid expansion. That's That saved North Carolina from a, a lot more grief, and that race between the attorney general and, if it's the crazy, lieutenant governor is really important. And I, I think the two things that really have to happen in North Carolina, inside, internally, the state has to work on getting more blacks registered in voting they underperform and they shouldn't but outside groups that give money always view North Carolina as basically a red state that's a mistake In that Senate race last year outside groups put in about five-fold more money than than Republicans did than Democrats so if those two things change you're right it is the most promising state that Trump carried in 2020
3: well I've been in Manhattan raising money for the last three days two days and I, I talk a lot about North Carolina. Yeah, well, good, and good. You know what? Because what you want is a place, you know, where the stakes in the election are huge, and and you really got a chance. And the stakes are a gigantic, and you really got a chance. Right, right. Uh, this guy, this Republican, the lieutenant governor, he's like loony in the goddamn tune. I mean, in looniness, he he, he can hold his own with any of them. Oh. He really can, and he's probably the odds-on favorite
2: to get the nomination because they love loonies, and he's so yeah. vocal. You know, they elected a loony senator, but he or his people were smart enough; they just they hit him the whole campaign. Uh, yeah. This guy Mark Robinson doesn't like to hide. He, he 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 likes to show his craziness out front, which is good.
3: I guess. I, I mean, hope.
2: I mean, it's good for Democrats.
3: Right. Right. Anyway, I, I, I'm we're gonna do everything I can to try to keep that seat. Cool. The guy we got is good. I the, mean, it's not like, you know... The
2: Attorney General. Uh, Roy Cooper was the Attorney General before
3: he was governor. Uh, he, Attorney General for maybe 12 years. From well, what and, I know, he, Josh Donald. He Josh is. Josh started Josh Shapiro's campaign.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, he really should. Be aggressive. In, including the fact that he might have the same kind of opponent. which is all, Which is always helpful. The next question comes from Judy. And in Brooklyn, Maine, that's L-I-N... She said, someone should point out that Tucker Carlson and Fox once successfully defended against a libel suit by arguing the Carlson show is entertainment, not news. That would seem to undermine Fox's defense now that it deserves First Amendment protections as a news-gathering outfit. Fox can't have it both ways. And she says, incidentally, Al, I was once a worker bee in your Washington newsroom at Bloomberg. I sat fairly close to your desk in the corner of the newsroom. Judy, I hope it was a good experience. Don't tell us if it was. I don't think you'd write in if it was a bad experience. But you're right about this. Uh, I mean, this is just a, uh, this is not a serious news organization, uh, you know, at least in prime time. And I must say, Brett Baer, who's a friend, has been hurt by some of the revelations uh, that came out about him that uh, didn't support their very solid, Uh, fact, data-based finding that uh, Biden carried Arizona, which he did. But David Clark, a Fox executive, James, one time said that Hannity and Carlson's shows are not credible. That's not coming from the left. That's not coming from someone they've picked on. That's coming from their own executive, and it's so true.
3: You know, I'm trying to think as you were talking how to express this, and of course, this this lawsuit has exposed everything that any person with an IQ-hardened room temperature would know. It's a total bullshit organization. They hate Trump. Trump hates them. They hate their viewers. Their viewers, loyalty to them, extend only to the extent that they'll tell these viewers exactly what they want to hear. And you got even the quote, good ones, unquote, saying we need to lie more. And if you think about it, the Arizona, Fox, Arizona night election calls, probably most profound piece of political TV journalism, maybe that I can remember because everybody thought Biden was losing. I mean I mean it was look, looked bad in Florida and people were despondent and all of a sudden and pretty early in the night, these guys come up with the correct call. not the Post, not the times. not 538 not not cook, not anything. And of course they had to fire everybody. right It's just it's a total they fired him for getting it right. You yeah, got right. 'Cause they don't, they don't want, they don't want it. The, the viewers in 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 Brent Bayer in, in Tucker, in all of my right, these people are not looking for the truth, you idiot. What what are we doing this for? And they all know it. And they'll argue any anything they want to argue in court. They say, well, just bullshit, Entertainment Network. All right, and they'll they'll do this. It, it. But the thing is. To the people that watch it, they don't give a shit. They don't give a shit that, that they hate them, that they belial them, that they look down on them. You just tell me what I want to hear. Right. That's absolutely true. Right. While I'm waiting in line for, for free food.
2: Okay. She said to me, James, we have Jeff in St. Pete, Florida, who says that you become more pessimistic the more correct you are. He uh, he agrees that offloading Harris will be a loose nuke event for the Democratic Party. That said, according to Jeff, Biden's not going to be reelected with Harris on the ticket, no matter who's the MAGA nominee. Any thoughts?
3: Oh, geez, Jeff, why do you ask for these questions? Huh? Yeah. Can't you just go down there and like sleep on the beach there in St. Pete or something like that? You don't know, <laughs> have anything better to do than make me scorn, torment you. You know. First of all, I, uh, you see it, uh, Karen Finney did an interview with uh, Puck, uh, uh, Tara Palmieri or something, I, I think that's right. And basically, you know, to disrespect Vice President Harris is an insult to the party's base, to black women everywhere. Yeah, this is nuts. And then my dear friend, Donna Brazil, wrote an op ed in, in the New York Times. Right. Any credit, she thought, boom, 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 you dare not touch her. Uh, I saw another prominent person, Democratic Politics, actually uh, was a, a, a white female, saying that, you know, to get rid of Harris would be an insult to women everywhere. I mean, they are mounting, In, in, in you and I know this, this is not opinion, this is fact, the Biden people really did not want her. Uh, but they did a they did a good job of jamming them, and they're going to be jammed. I, I, she, I, I, she's I, not going to be dropped.
2: If he runs, he will run
3: with Harris. Yeah, I, I, I think I, that assessment seems to be yeah. the correct assessment. And Harris will become
2: more of an issue given Biden's you age. Say,
3: this, this is what, you, you can't say— it don't matter who the vice president is if you're going to be 86 at the end of term. You can't say age is not an issue. You can't say, let's focus, let's pivot to the real issues here. Let's talk about prescription drug costs and let's talk about uh, unemployment. No, those are, you're correct. Those are issues, but age is an issue. Yeah. You're not going to talk people out of it. And I'm sorry, and who Karen. who the vice president is, is an issue. Yeah. You're not going to talk people out of it. And
2: whatever Karen Finney and Donna Brazil write and think it's not what most Americans think now. Kamala Harris has held in pretty low regard by most Americans. And uh, even mm-hmm. a, a number of Democratic politicians will say to you, geez, you know, she just hasn't risen to the occasion. So, you know, maybe right. maybe the next year she
3: will, but she's got it, a way to go. They were, they were urged early in their term to make their focus crime. form former prosecutor, form right. right. former attorney general, and they said, we can't do that. If, if Kamala Harris would have been the point person for this administration on crime, and would have been could have been for police reform, could be doing like town Hall's talking to crime victims, you know, boom, 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 she'd be twelve points higher. To, you know, court, you're
2: reason. absolutely right, and it's not too late though. It would have been better if it had been done a year, year and a half ago, but it's not too late now. I mean, the Republicans are running big on crime everywhere, and if she's willing to do it to be tough, you know, to be tough and make people accountable. But I don't think they're going to do it.
3: I I, I, I I just don't get it. And now, of course, to, to the point we, we we discuss this, where Biden is, you know, not vetoing override legislation on the D.C. criminal code. This is just what it's come to. You're right. You got to get in front of it now. But if, you know, I've been I've been beating this drum forever. You know, wrote an op-ed piece in the, two years ago in a yep. Wall Street Journal telling Democrats to own this issue. And I got news for you. It's not going away any time Ask Laurie
2: Lightfoot if, back if back you think back. it's going away. Uh, yes.
3: The mayor of Chicago who just got 17% right. of the vote. 17%. Right, right. Seven, the incumbent gets 17%. If you talk about something gets your attention in politics, an incumbent at 17%, uh, you don't need James Carter to tell you that. That, that's a shitty number. Hey, James, our
2: next question comes from Mike in Annapolis, Maryland, which we agreed last week is one of our favorite capitals, maybe our favorite. And Mike asks, how is it possible that some of the most horrible and deceitful human beings on earth all ended up on the Senate Judiciary Committee? Is there any way we the people can do any oversight? Mike, you're right. I mean, that's Ted Cruz and Marsha Blackburn and Josh Hawley. It's a really motley crew. But, you know, I think I would pit the House Judiciary Committee. Uh, You know, they can go one-on-one. That has Jim Jordan and Daryl Issa uh, and Matt Goetz and Andy Biggs and Ken Buck. But I don't want to eliminate the House Oversight Committee from this uh, worst and horrible and deceitful contest. Because they not only have Jordan, who's really running the committee, they got a figurehead chairman. Jordan, they have Paul Gosar, they have Biggs, they have Scott Perry, the mastermind of trying to overturn the election last time. And to top it off, just to top it off, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert. I don't know, I think I'd pit them up against uh, Cruz, Blackburn, and Hawley. James, what do you think?
3: I think that the rank and file Republican voter, not all, but a substantial number of them, are are just dumb, trashy people. I'm sorry, I, 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 I just, I don't know how anybody can come to a different assessment, and it is not surprising That they elect people like you just brought out. These people hold office because the Republican rank and file wants non thinking, extreme people who will constantly lie to them. And they're getting what they demand. And they're getting getting it. They're getting the the politicians that they demand, and they're getting the news that they demand. This, This is the American capitalist system at work in American political system producing the result that they want. To
2: go to the other side, I'm John sorry. in Chicago and Laurel in Manhattan ask almost identical questions. They ask about J.B. Pritzker, who has a GDP of over a trillion dollars. They say he's passed a $15 minimum wage, legalized recreational uh, marijuana, passed a woman's access to abortion, and gender-affirming care. He ended the cash bail system, banned assault weapons, and high-capacity magazines. Uh, and they both say Governor Pritzker has also raised the state bond rating uh, to, I guess it's an A-minus, and extended he- health care to undocumented immigrants and passed a six-year, $40 billion infrastructure plan. Wow, I'm tired. Wouldn't Governor Prisker be a serious presidential candidate if
3: Biden doesn't run, James? The answer is yes. An and interesting thing, uh, when we had Quentin uh, Fulks on, who was Raphael Warnock's right. campaign manager, was like hottest you know uh, black guy from you know rural South Georgia, and he came up through uh, Governor Pritzker's shop. Uh, he's a very aggressive guy. Uh, he's got a record. he's got a bank account, and he's got ambition. And I, if if I were President Biden, I, I would want some assurance, and I'm not sure, I don't know if he'd get it, that he would not challenge me in 2024, because he's he's making an awful lot of moves here, an awful lot of moves, and they're putting a lot of stuff out. Now, I'm sure what they would say is, well, just in case the president changes mind, we're getting in position to go. But whenever they, he, he, he made he may jump the light that's not impossible and I tell you, you're right got-
2: the Democrats have a bunch of really impressive governors I mean more than oh, any man. it's really incredible I mean Pisker is certainly one of them and Roy Cooper is one, one and Gretchen Whitmer is one and Phil Murphy is one and there are others it's it's just a, it's absolutely. a very very
3: that's what people don't understand it in just again happened to me Twice yesterday in Manhattan. Well, James, I mean, I don't, I don't think Joe should run, but we don't have yeah. anybody. I'm like, are you? You, you just want to like, are you crazy? But you know, I, I tend to be a very patient guy because I leave before after I've had two drinks. So I, I, I'm nice to him. Said, so, no, we actually got to. Oh yeah, I didn't think about that. And you know, we the the the, 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 the voters saw. Because all they know, if you had a, I mean, I love Joe Biden. Please, he, he, he I couldn't be more admiring of him. He's like great state school guy. He's, he's like best record any president had this far into it. But man, 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 please think yeah, about no, this. You're right. They go going anyway i'm gonna break way.
2: one of my rules here james aaron who just says he's in the usa aaron i'm gonna ask this question from you but it's the last time unless you tell us where in the usa it's a big country and he says how come debate moderators this is presidential i think he's talking about are always talking to head news people why not a historian scientist or even a distinguished retired politician first of all i think the presidential debate commission's uh, days are over should be i mean there are better ways to do it open it up to a market i don't have any problems i actually before maybe having an historian or you know a scientist i don't know i think i just thought it'd be more free floating. they do that in the state level and it works pretty darn well and i'll tell you something else that we i i was only i only staged one debate i was at bloomberg with the washington post in 2011 and we did one thing that people rarely do we had the candidates question each other. They each got to ask a question of the other. It, you know, was so-so. It didn't work as well as we had hoped, but it's a good idea because it, it it's revealing about the
3: answer, but it's also revealing about the question. Yeah, a couple of things is, first of all, the candidates kind of pick the moderator. They can veto them. I mean, they, 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 they don't just come in and say, and I I, I think the presidential Debate commission is an idea whose time and has come and, and gone and gone a long time ago. And I don't know, I don't think that the next Republican nominee may not debate. They don't care anymore. All right, They don't care. And, uh, it, you know, what it is... And, and it's the campaigns that by the way, the campaigns are totally complicit in this because they get to write any rule you want they do. because they want they want a whole whole thing but they're not really debates they, they the campaigns want like a joint press conference and that's what they turn into we, we, we've lost the whole way we've lost the idea of what they should be uh, one day we need to get Sidney on Blumenthal here and talk about the Lincoln-Douglas debates. And what, but man, it, it goes through the history of those and, you know, how many people went to them and how long they last and what they were like and, you know, that they have this sort of war in American presidential pro- politics that most people don't understand, but when we close an election, we should do that because I, it, it's really illuminating as to kind of how, how all this started and what it's become but the question is it's a very sophisticated and and question worthy to discuss and the answers that we have are not good because frankly the thing is not that good
2: anyway Aaron thank you for the question it really is a good question tell us where you're from next time anyway any of those we didn't get to some very good questions so please send them back uh because we'll try to get to them next week we love this segment uh our audience is so smart and uh, they really ask very searching questions. So keep them coming. Hey, thanks for listening to Politics War Room with James Carvell and I'm Al Hunt. Don't forget to send your questions for us by email to politicswarroom at gmail.com or tweet them for next week's show at Politicon. Now, following this episode, we'd appreciate it if you check out the links to our sponsors. Hold On Bags, Sleep Me by Chili Sleep, and Real Paper in the show notes. We thank you for supporting them because when you do, you help make this podcast happen. Now, to keep up with us, subscribe to Politics War Room on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Please rate the show with a five-star review. We'll be back next week with another show as we continue our War Room planning.